Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Wildermyth, developed and published by Worldwalker Games. It was released for PC and Mac in May of 2021, but it's been in development a lot longer than that. <laughs> Quite a while now. What has it been? Um, four, six. five, six years? I think that's just since it's been an early access. It's been worked on since 2013, as I understand it. This game does have a good <laughs> amount of polish on it, so good job, devs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and worth mentioning, the devs in question, World Walker Games, uh, Austin-based company founded by several Austins, funnily enough. Ann Austin and Nate Austin, along with um, sibling of those two partners, uh, Doug Austin. Austins for days. Austin's and Austin making an awesome game. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Um, but yeah, uh, as you said, a lot of polish in this one, and it, it shows in the time and dedication they put into it. Um, it spent a long time in early access, but I think this game really took off last year in 2021 as of this recording. Yeah, Brian started playing it last year, I remember, and he's like, guys, you got to check this out. So, you know, I like to humor Brian now and then by playing these video games of his. And they always turn out to be a good choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm i happy to once again have brought you a game that seems to have, have grabbed your attention. Um, I'll keep doing my best to keep doing that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Wilder Myth. Uh, the basis of the game, uh, kind of like the pitch of it, is that you're following heroes over their whole careers. From their just-getting-started pitchfork days to their powerful primes, and then on into old age, retirement, and memory. Uh, there are tactical turn-based party RPG parts, and there's an overworld map where you take heroes from one part to the other, and that's all interspersed with these uh, storytelling cutscenes that do some wonderful procedurally generated narrative. I think that's the most important part for me is that all of this is interspersed with decisions that you're making uh, about the characters in your party. And the game is pulling, as you said, Josh, procedurally from a, a large list of um, sort of events and cutscenes and things that can happen to your party uh, from in a procedural way. Um, I think that's to me why you know I think we both saw this that the devs think of it as a library of plays, which I think of as a really interesting way to think about this. Yeah, the library of plays is a great way to think about it. You have a randomized cast of characters; they might have their own backstories and histories but their personality types are the ones that say hey this is who shows up like they might have a cutscene that could trigger in these circumstances if you have a hot-headed character and if you have a loner character maybe there's some sort of confrontation between the two maybe they become rivals or something like that at that point um but that particular cutscene only fires if you have those matching personality types yeah, it's like the show that gets puts on depends on who's present. Um, and I really like that. And um, that the sort of tags they use to to make that happen is pretty novel to me. I think this to me is reminiscent of like how um, Valve handled the procedural dialogue that happened during Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2. And that's why that always worked so well in the moment. And this game sort of uses a similar methodology to make sure that the story always feels right for the characters that are on hand. Um, mm -hmm. It always feels organic. It doesn't feel like anything's forced, which I always really appreciate. 
Yeah, and you know, there's the main campaign arcs that you'll go through. Those stories are more or less like set in stone what events are going to happen in them. But there's also the little quests you co- go along along the way. Uh, things that you stumble across, an ancient shrine here or there, that can launch you off on your own expeditions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way this feels to me is almost like um, sort of a tabletop like style, right? Like it's the game is playing the D the dungeon master in your, your tabletop game, and they're just throwing a new sort of scenario that you have to react to. And it always sort of works well with the characters you have on hand, like it feels tailored to you. And it happens constantly. It happens every time you arrive at a place. It happens before the battle starts, after the battle ends, in interstitial sequences that are sort of organic. The game just, like, constantly throws this writing and and storytelling at you. And uh, that always feels really... It it really helps flesh out these characters that, as you said, Josh, you're basically just taking and plucking out of a field with pitchforks, you know? (laughs) Pulling them up from the ground like turnips. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I I think what I like about this is that, you know, if you're talking about, like, the difference between the blank canvas Elder Scrolls character and the, like, very authored, like, um, say, uh, maybe let's say, like, the Bioware character, you know, in something like a Mass Effect or Dragon Age, this is, like, a nice middle ground. Like, they're making you write the backstory in a very broad way, but then it's helping you flesh out the character in a more organic way than you might in a totally open blank canvas type game. There are points along these quests and cutscenes where you do um, get to make a significant choice. And you see this at the very beginning of a campaign when you're kind of deciding, oh, here's two of my characters that I'm starting off with. What's their relationship going to be? Friends mm. or lovers or rivals? And that can set the tone for things going later on. Or later on, as you're going through a quest, you might decide, am I going to save this guy who's turned into a statue, or am I going to save myself here? Uh, So you do make decisions that have impact and meaning and consequence. Yeah, and the game always likes to bring those back, too. Like, I don't know about you, but I I always made it a point to, like, whenever the game was offering me to have some sort of relationship between two characters in my party, I'd always take it, whether that be, like, a rivalry or romantic involvement. Like, whatever that was, it always just made the following campaign so much more interesting. What what did you think about that? Yeah, uh, not just the relationships offered, but even the side quests. Um, I always found myself scampering off after a lost artifact or, oh, this guy heard that his mother's in town. Uh, He thought she was dead or something like that. Um, There were always some very interesting and well-written encounters to follow that. Yeah, absolutely. And the fun thing about that is, is like, even if, you know, it's something that doesn't work out perfectly for you, the game is like, it's giving you little treats even when you're losing, right? Like you're getting a good story from these characters, even if um, you're, uh, you know, getting your ass kicked or being maimed by a monster or something like that. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Yes, this game definitely deals with consequence and deals with it pretty hard. With that, maybe we should talk a little bit about, like, how it's presenting those consequences and how the story is actually told. Because I guess before we go any further, it's worth mentioning, like, we talked about tactics, we talked about storytelling, but how is this all being presented? 
Mm-hmm. The game does a very cool little um, comic book style sort of thing where it will show you one to three panels at a time and um, have the characters come in. They'll have different expressions. The character, they're kind of like facial models are all very similar to each other. So the devs are able to just like slot in, oh, whoever this character is, they need to be scowling here or have kind of a raised eyebrow here and your characters will have you know all the loot that you put on them they'll be showing that in the artwork um but they're able to just be like okay cue up an emotion and get that emotion to fire during these uh comic book slides yeah it feels like someone learned how to draw comics from bill watterson honestly because Mm. they always have like it's sort of a bill watterson-esque sort of painterly style uh, little watercolors, but also like, you know, hard line drawing as well over it. On top of that, like the extra reaction frame is used liberally and it's always to great effect. Like someone will say something and then the last frame is a character reacting to it with either like a pensive or sarcastic or skeptical expression. And it's, it just works really well. Like not only is the writing good, but the way that they characterize that in the art works extremely well. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, one thing I do want to kind of bring up about the writing, like this is a great game for sure, but I think um, a bit of a weak point for me was just the the number of heroes you take and the number of stories they go across. Like uh, you, there's these different campaigns. I've finished three of them myself, and I've probably played through 25 to 30 different heroes, and I definitely have the memorable ones. But there's also kind of like the less memorable ones. You know, I've forgotten about them because they're less memorable. Um, the characters, specifically, not the events. Like, um, even in the first uh, campaign while you're fighting the Gorgons, I think at the end of chapter one or chapter two, you um, you fight like a Medusa snake kind of person. And um, one of your characters at the end, like, sacrifices themselves, kind of, uh, and gets, like, this magical stuff imprinted on them. And I remember the the guy I had who chose to sacrifice himself wasn't my choice. He just kind of jumped out there. He was, like, the guy who just joined. And I'm like, I don't care about you at all. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes the procedural generation, yeah, like, can work against you like that. Like, oh, this would have worked out better if it would have been a different member of the party. Mm -hmm. Um, It, you know, I do feel like for the most part, it's it's choosing that right. But yeah, at the end of the day, proc gen's only as good as you make it. And then also the situation afforded to it and sometimes it does miss right i mean that's just the, the nature of randomness i guess mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think i was thinking about those facial expressions them being very similar for all the characters does tend to feed towards that um similarity feeling between the less memorable ones like some people will have like a bird head or a flaming leg or something like that and that's pretty stand out and memorable um but going through the number of characters you do over the number of campaigns, because uh, even within a campaign, you don't get to stick with just one set of characters. Yeah, that's right. The The game does this thing where it's able to rotate out characters based on age. I'm sure we'll talk about that more when we get to characters, but I want to hit one more thing on the writing before we move on. But mm-hmm. um, it is, um, I think very well done in terms of just the prose itself like yeah i know it's comic book style but there's also um 
pretty like descriptive and well-written narrative um, infused into all of that. You know, um, it's pretty like um, pretty evocative language that they're using. And I guess we can credit Doug Austin and the the group of writers that he recruited to get this all written and done uh, for that. So um, kudos to the the writing team on this. I think they all like wrote some very good stories and some very well-written stories as well. Oh, I agree. Like some of these vignettes, um, the quality of writing was good. It was nice reading just the descriptions, uh, but even just the the stuff they came up with, um, very imaginative, like um, the ancient order of guardian turtles um, <laughs> or the, the people who become obsessed with spirals or uh, and find the magic that's hidden within those or things like that. Yes, or becoming hill-touched and slowly turning into a mountain. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's it's good stuff. Um, but to your point, all of this is, is happening on the, the backdrop of, of characters. And um, to your point that you made earlier, all of these characters are, you know, proc gen, so they do have sort of mix-and-match features and, you know... Um, textures and tile sets but they come in in three flavors in this game right you have your your in terms of class at least you have your warrior your hunter and your mystic um warrior pretty self-explanatory melee dude hits hard attacks up close hunter has stealth abilities generally using either bow and arrow or sneaking with a dagger and mystic the most interesting of the three in my opinion uh binds itself to items in the environment in order to cast spells a cool take on magic in my opinion yeah you don't just cast a fireball you have to like infuse your soul into a campfire somewhere and then then you can like convince the fire to jump out at the enemies yeah yeah i really like that the take on magic in this game and it's worth mentioning that uh there's also no healing um you know there's not like um, you're not generally speaking learning like spells from a spell book and you're able to cast them at will and also there's no con- consistent way to heal people um, uh, and I think this was a good choice uh, mostly because healing can happen in the background between battles and two as the developers said healing slows down action and erases consequences and this game's all about consequences yeah absolutely I, I mean that pace thing I don't think should be um, understated either like if you have th- four characters um, but one of them's dedicated to healing then yeah your characters survive for longer but you're only doing you know a percentage of the damage um, but then the consequences too yeah like um, if you're able to just heal a severed arm back onto your shoulder then it doesn't feel so consequential as when that does happen or when a death does happen yeah, and, and death and losing, you know, the death of a character in this game is is treated epically, right? Like, you always either go out in a blaze of glory, almost guaranteeing a kill on your enemy, or your character is maimed and they live with a consequence for the rest of their career, or they sacrifice, like, a epic weapon if they have that, you know? Like, you can have your weapon sort of take a hit for you, and the character's set back in that regard. Oh, I didn't realize that was a option. Yeah, well, if you have a good weapon and a character still manages to get killed, that is your your punishment, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, but it's it's a good point about consequences, too, because um, you can heal outside of combat, outside of the uh, tactical combat, just kind of like resting and recuperating. But as as we'll talk later on in the overworld map, um, that 
t- that has a consequence of its own um, if you wait a lot, wait around for too long. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And speaking of of waiting around for long, I think this game does a really interesting thing with the time scale that it operates on. Um, you know, the the given campaigns that you're operating within can last anywhere from you know, weeks to months to years. But then in between every campaign, there's usually like a 10 years of peace or something on that scale of time progression. And for long campaigns with like five or six chapters, what this means is you're advancing 50 plus years over the course of a campaign. And during that time, your heroes get old and, you know, relationships progress. They have kids, they retire. And eventually maybe even like the kids will join your your crew right as as adults themselves going out on adventures so you have sort of a legacy aspect there yeah uh, and you can have some really interesting cutscenes between like um father daughter or what have you like um it's a interesting set of tags to add into the library of plays you see some really cool stuff there yeah absolutely and i think this is some of the most interesting stuff for me and some of the stuff that's most expedient to the writing right like the easiest way for me to have a relationship between like a married couple that i you know witnessed them meet and then see them years later as like old and wizened and like very comfortable with each other is to just erase that section in the middle and let me fill it in myself with my brain right because no amount of like i guess if that time doesn't exist like it's not accounted for and suddenly you're forcing these people to act like an old married couple at the end of a year like it doesn't make sense right and (laughs) having having it diegetically explained that there's a 10-year gap in there where all of a sudden they're very sarcastic with each other like it makes a lot more sense Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, interesting choice to do that 10 years uh, because things do come by. And I want to bring up that retirement aspect again, because I think that's kind of a underrated bit of their game design here. Um, your heroes level up and they can get much more powerful through their abilities, their equipment. Um, but yeah, definitely their abilities are some very powerful ones uh, they can oh, unlock. Yeah. Um, but they only get that as they get older and older. And you can get to a point at the end of the campaign where like, oh, your amazing heroes retired right before the final showdown, <laughs> right before the last chapter. And then you, it just raises the tension and raises the stakes. That's right. And suddenly, you know, the, the ringer that you were counting on to be in your uh, party of five that's taking on the final boss is not there. And you're filling them in with like a greenhorn or a you know, level two character. And they, they call them different levels of horn. There's like green horns, blue horns. Cannon fodder. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's funny, but you know, the other side of that is then suddenly if, if you don't have any replacements and you're not, um, having folks retire, you're leading a party of geriatrics into the final battle. And, uh, that's also not great. (laughs) No, powerful geriatrics. Like, I don't think there's any aging related penalties. But generally speaking, um, you're getting penalized by the fact that these folks have been either maimed or, um, you know, otherwise penalized over the course of the years. Like, you know, not all of the random events that you come upon are positive. So I've had a party of, um, let's just say, characters that have waned in their later years and leading them into the final battle 
um, as as wizened, gray-haired heroes of yore was an interesting experience and, and made me feel a little bad, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Clear out the retirement home. <laughs> Get some pitchforks in their hands. Yeah. I, honestly, it would have been better if they had a pitchfork-wielding youngster or two amongst them at that point, but hey, it worked out at the end. <laughs> One thing I want to mention with the abilities is that at first, when I started playing this game, I thought the game was a little light on the tactical side of the tactical combat. Um, But it was with more time put into it and seeing more of these abilities that people have and learning to use them effectively that you really see that there's a lot of depth to this combat. Mm, Yes, for sure. Um, It's especially if you try and play on higher difficulty levels, like understanding the nuances of this, you know, I think the easiest thing to compare it to for me is XCOM. Um, The modern XCOM games bear a striking resemblance to this in the way that you both use your environment and also, you know, you have character archetypes that you're utilizing skill sets that they have in specific situations. Mm -hmm. Um, But this game just, to me, does a lot better job than that of, realizing the stakes by making you invested in these characters um but to your point on the tactics i i do agree that while it's not the deepest thing in the world it more than measures up to what the game is asking it to do yeah absolutely oh no i think it is a deep tactical system it's just that i didn't perceive it as such at first blush because um without the abilities and learning the kind of ins and outs of those um, like the the first campaign arc you play, I feel like that one you got to play at least two campaigns to really get the feel for the game. I agree with that, especially because the legacy aspects start to work themselves into it, and you get to see the variety of builds that characters can have, um, and they are pretty varied. Like you can have two warriors, hunters, or mystics that play entirely differently than each other. Well, one another way that the characters vary that I mentioned up before is that if you equip a certain piece of armor then that shows up on their um, on their character model and the cutscenes if they have a epic weapon or they got a badass cloak or something like that um, then the it'll show up in those comic book scenes which is a really nice touch that's not easy to get all those art assets in by any means uh, one of the things I heard the devs did that I thought was a nice little touch too is that all of the characters have their own sort of color tint, and anything they equip will shade towards that tint. Hmm. That makes sense, because even if you line up two characters on the same team with the ex- like a, a very similar color palette, they will look a little bit different. And I guess that is the, the color tint that you're, you're talking about there. Like, basically, it's a, a character-specific palette that will remain true no matter what you're you're adjusting because you can customize characters colors which i often do like if i huh. have a guy that um if i have a guy that is uh you know suddenly becomes the flame guy right he has 
flames for hands and can cast cone of flame um, because he was blessed by fire or whatnot. He's turning red or orange or something like that for sure. <laughs> um, he's not retaining that nice azure blue tunic that he was wearing before. Yeah, it um, doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, and usually I'll have my hunters in a varying shade of either green or like dark purple or something like that to denote the ranger or rogue archetype that I'm going for in that. But yeah, I, I always go in and adjust the colors. I don't know if you noticed that when we were playing multiplayer last night, but I immediately went in and adjusted both of my characters' colors. <laughs> nope. It was completely <laughs> lost on me. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, that tint thing is interesting because I did notice there's aspects of the characters' colors that you can't affect, and that must be what this is. Another good, good bit of uh, design I want to call out that I think worked really well for this game was the simplified inventory um, mm-hmm. If you come across a artifact axe, you can either equip it on one of your heroes, replacing their current weapon, or you can salvage it. There is no stash it can go to, or there's no selling it to a merchant somewhere to, you know, save up for the armor you really want. Um, it's a simple use it or lose it, and I think it worked out really well for this game. Yeah, definitely agree. I, I guess it's technically use it or scrap it, right? Because you can, like, if no one can actually use it, which is exceedingly rare, you can get a resource from it. And resources are something we haven't touched on yet, but um, you are able to claim property or, you know, claim tiles on the overworld map that we, we touched on to get resources. And these allow you to, between chapters, purchase weapons, armor, etc. Um, and yeah, if you're not choosing to utilize uh, a treasure or an inventory item on one of your characters, like a new brooch or cloak or whatever, then you can scrap it for a nominal amount of resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, the developer said in an interview that this was something they brought from their casual games background, where they're like, oh, inventory system, we don't need that. And I think that <laughs> if they were a more traditional developer, like they would have just assumed you need an inventory system because that's the kind of expectation. So I liked how this game played with that expectation some. Yeah, it, it is. Um, if I'm thinking of like, if you described this game to me in a vacuum and asked me whether or not it had an inventory system for, say, quest items or equipment, uh, my answer would be absolutely, it must, it has to. There's no way it could function without it. And the fact that it does and is better for not having that is, uh, yeah, you're right, a subversion, but a good one. So we've talked a bit about like what happens in the campaigns in terms of the overworld, the tactical combat, but maybe we should just talk a bit about the structure of these overall campaigns. Because mm-hmm. uh, this game does come preloaded with um, several pre-written campaigns, I think five at the moment, although I think they're expanding that. And then there's an infinite number that can be randomly generated. I also believe that... Um that players can create their own campaigns, like uh, player-created content here. I know they can do that with events, at least, so I'd imagine that campaigns would not be far off if it's not there already. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm, I'm trying to look at Steam right now, but I think mod support is here, and campaigns are some of the things that can be either modded in or loaded via like a, a pre-built uh, player content situation. Either way, Lots of campaign uh, support here, both uh, inbuilt and otherwise, and 
the campaigns are, are really fun. And, and to your point, as you said earlier, Josh, I think there's some of the better written content in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. gen- generally speaking, a campaign in this game, you know, it involves sort of like a framing story um, that starts you off, um, you know, introduces you to your initial cast of heroes, and then you are, you know, given an inciting incident about some either incursion of a group of enemies or um, something along those lines, and it's um, then setting you up uh, with this initial cast and thrusting you into a new procedurally generated overworld map. Um, across which all of these events and, and, you know, across which the campaign will play out. To your point about this writing being some of the better writing in the game, I, I would agree, but I also think that this is the form where the writing can really bloom. Uh, it can take its time and be more subtle, whereas if you're chasing a quest somewhere, um, I haven't really done or seen anything that I'd consider a quest arc. Like, maybe here's a one-off, okay, you start over here, you go over here, maybe you go to a second place after that. Um, But generally speaking, the side quests I've been on have all been very side questy, rather than having space for good writing to breathe. I have seen some instances where proc gen side quests will happen over the course of a campaign like if a Mm. character acquires a certain uh you know trait like um you know becomes arcane touched or you know flame touched or something like that i had one character that acquired this like blue skin early on in a campaign and then became like a guardian of a forest and that like kept coming back for that character throughout the course of an entire campaign and then Mm -hmm. eventually he was so powerful i brought him back in legacy and it continued to like unfold in a different legacy entirely so there are certain traits that seem to like continually play out for certain characters if they acquire them maybe it's just a fact of like certain traits are better fleshed out than other ones okay yeah that's fair enough that's fair enough um but that that in itself is interesting because uh to your point like going back to campaigns these are pre-written spaces where you are knowing you're going to come across an arc that plays across at least however many chapters long the campaign is, Mm -hmm. uh, which to your point lets it breathe a bit um, and provides a really healthy, nice backdrop for all of your character action to happen. Yeah, it gives the time for the side quest to come along. It gives the time for the characters to form and develop new relationships or to welcome new characters into the war band. Yeah, and I really like this because, you know, you will have like a, you know, party of level three or four or five characters and all of a sudden you're introducing like one or two new greenhorns, you know, brand new characters into it and seeing them sort of come up and banter with the more experienced uh, heroes in your party is always like a really fun thing. You know, sometimes they're like overconfident, other times it's like you're more experienced heroes taking them under their wing um it works out really well and and that that always feels organic to me too and i think even you know i said i played a lot of these campaigns and um oh not i've played three and started a new campaign with brian last night um but there is a ton of content in this game a ton of events like uh I don't think I saw a single one of those events that we played through last night before. 
which is pretty impressive for me having gone on, I don't know, 80, 90 battles at this point. <laughs> yeah, it, it is nice because, you know, you'll see not only like, as, as you mentioned, like events and cutscenes before every battle, but also between them as you enter new areas. I mean, maybe it's worth mentioning the structure a little more or you know, fleshing it out a bit more in the campaigns. But, you know, every new area you move to has either settlement in it that you need to rescue from the enemy incursion or just an encampment of enemies that you need to clear out. And then after that, you can choose to either rebuild um, the settlement or area or build a bridge that'll connect you to a new area or a mountain pass or something like that. And um, there's always interesting things that happen as a result of that, whether it be combat or an event in which your characters, you know, are in some way advanced in their relationships or traits. And it's always giving you these extra little tidbits of story and development, uh, even when you don't expect it to. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. Uh, you were mentioning the enemies, too. Uh, with each of these five major campaigns, there's uh, you're going up against one of five major enemy groups. Um, from the clockwork zombies to the telepathic bugs, um, they were very much, the dev team said they were very much against doing the normal goblins and orcs kind of standard fantasy tropes. Yeah, I really like this. Uh, you mentioned the clockwork undead, the Morthagi, I think they were called. Uh, bone and metal, something you don't necessarily think of, of putting together, you know, the undead and, um you know, uh, golems, basically, or clockwork monsters. It, it's a cool idea. They were, I think I remember hearing the interview, they, like you said, Josh, they were like, huh, but do we have goblins? Do we have orcs? No, let's let's make something new. Let's make something more interesting. Uh, the deepest uh, minotaur-like cult worshiping, um, you know, underground gods who live in caves. You know, it's just interesting stuff rather mm-hmm. than, you, you know, your tried and true, yeah, skeleton arts are sure. <laughs> And, you know, um, I think they were talking about the kind of some of the racist undertones of this old fantasy racial typing system. Uh, But even regardless of the political baggage with it, it's also kind of like mechanical baggage, too. Like if you see a skeleton, um, you expect them to fight a certain way and it kind of colors your thinking. Um, it's less of a chance for surprise, or at least surprise that doesn't feel like they're reaching for it too far. When you have a blank slate, you can do what you want, and no one can cry foul. Right. And, you know, shorthand and reaching for tropes can help. You know, character shorthand is an easy way to make your game, like, parsable and relatable. But if you're, you know, invested in, as this game is, in writing and explaining its world and mythos and, you know, even though it's procedurally generated, it does definitely have its own mythos and underlying lore. Um, then I, I don't see why you wouldn't do what this team did and, and create something novel. And I, I applaud them for that choice. It was, you know, probably not the easiest choice to make, but definitely one that paid off, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Pay, paid off in spades. But once um, you are able to, you know, fight off the monsters and uh, 
and that's one thing about monsters is they are always monsters, right? They 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 <laughs> they make it very clear that the monsters are incompatible with human life. So it's not like you're killing people that could otherwise be negotiated with. <laughs> but um, um, but once you do end up fighting them off, um, you end up moving on to uh, the end of the campaign in which you see your entire legacy laid out before you. And this is sort of tallied up in, in the term of legacy points, which you've accrued throughout the course of your campaign. Well, accrued or spent, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but this legacy system that they have, I think is such a strong system and such an interesting idea. Um, you have these heroes that, you know, they've... Um, You've grown grown up with them, so to speak. Like you've seen them go from their pitchfork days to um, to being in their primes. Uh, you've seen them retire or die along the way, um, and you're able to pick your favorite ones from the campaign and kind of immortalize them in legend. Yeah, you sort of add them to a pantheon, and um, from that. Um, place you can choose to recruit them into new campaigns when they give you a choice to recruit recruit someone from a legacy right you can start with a legacy hero in some cases uh, if the campaign is say more difficult or they have uh, a slot for a character who is you know more experienced than the party surrounding them so to speak Think of them as the Aragorn coming into your party of hobbits. <laughs> now, important to mention here, when um, you recruit these legacy heroes, they are very much leveled down and powered down. Um, they'll be more powerful than, like, your random Joe over here, especially if you've um, taken them through a few campaigns. But they won't be the world beaters that they were at the end of your last campaign. Yeah, they de-age them a bit because, uh, you know, for the most part, like, your heroes will move into the ability to move them into legacy by retiring, right? They'll age out. So obviously you can't recruit a 90-year-old hero to suddenly start your campaign with. That doesn't make any sense. So they'll de-age them a bit. And I think this makes sense in the way that this game is trying to tell the stories about its characters, right? It's set up as a series of myths, right? And you know, different stories are told about different myths and the timing conflicts and, hey, maybe this happened during that first 10-year break that happened for that character or whatever, and it just didn't get included in that campaign. I almost kind of thought of it as like um, a reincarnation sort of thing. Like, these guys are not really in the same timeline even as it was before. Um, like, uh, your legacy hero, he's not just off on the side doing another campaign. I think you're free to think of it both ways, right? I mean, I, I agree with that reincarnation or not same timeline thing because at the end of the day, it's just a story being told, right? It's a myth. <laughs> there you go. They can be a little fuzzy around the edges, and that's all right. Yeah. Um, I think at the end of the day, like, it's one of those things that it doesn't really make sense to want to interrogate. It's like the stories about um, an epic hero like Hercules, right? Like, if you try and compile all the different stories about Hercules, one, you don't even know that this guy actually exists. Two, you know, none of it makes sense chronologically. None of it makes sense physically. None of it makes sense in any, you know, semblance of reality. But that's okay, because it's a myth. It's meant to tell a story about, you know, archetypes and morals and lessons not so much like hard facts and timelines yeah or to bring in a modern example i mean how many times have we watched uh batman's origin story or spider-man's origin story 
exactly. Yes, this is just a different uh, reincarnation of the same origin story. Um, there's always, uh, you know, maybe to put it in gamer parlance, there's always a lighthouse. There's always, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> channeling my, bio, my Bioshock. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like this about this game's legacy system. Um, you know, overlapping chronologies and uh, reincarnations or whatever you choose to call it, it's nice to bring back a character you're familiar with, even if they look a little different and evolve a little different than the first time around. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I will say... I wish I saw. I don't know if this is an option and I just haven't come across it yet or if it's not something they've programmed in there. Um, But I feel like for all the heroes go through, I did not see a lot of personality change in them. Like they they have their, uh, you know, their traits as I'm a hothead or I'm a leader or "I'm, I'm a romantic and I feel like if they come across events where it's like, oh, this, you know, maybe their uh, best friend died or something like that, and they become a little more reserved or something like that, um, if they lose a comrade in battle or uh, they, you know, you, you, this place could go, this game could go a dozen different ways with this. Um, but seeing a change in personality traits, I think, was something I would have liked to see but not get to. So this is one of those things that I have a couple small examples of, but I agree that it was less common than I wish it would have been. Because I did have characters that maybe started off as a a hothead and mellowed out as time went on due to like what they were subjected to. Like generally speaking, if a character undergoes a transformation, their personality changes in my experience. Hmm. Um, the hero that I've talked about a couple times, and I, I looked this up as we were talking because it was such a like a a drastic transformation and definitely my favorite hero was this character became spell touched and basically what happens is the character's skin turns blue they you know have an increase in potency and they basically have a a bonus to retirement age so they live longer but then that character for me also had this um event happen to them where they became like one with the forest and it was a warrior, not a mage. So the spell touch thing didn't really help them too much. But the one with the forest thing effectively caused them to never need to retire. Like they effectively became ageless. Um, so this this was basically like Doctor Manhattan, the warrior on my um, <laughs> on my team. And he changed from like a hothead to like this sort of almost like Zen monk, emotionless warrior who would like show up in my various campaigns and just wreck house because he was ageless and kept getting more powerful with each legacy. Um, And it was really interesting to see that happen over the course of time because it was a character that not only just changed across one legacy to the next, but across like a few. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I feel like the strong point is you get of this game is that it lets you choose which of your heroes go into legacy, like which ones you want to remember. Um, and so you you get your favorites, you get your boys, and you know they're able to uh, continue with you through the next uh, through the next story. Yeah, or it's it's a way to like say like oh we need to call in a ringer here like we need <laughs> like if, if like your campaign's going to shit and you have an option to spend some legacy points to call in a, a legacy hero instead of just a new recruit 
you bet your ass I'm going to do that. <laughs> I will say difficulty-wise, uh, there is a satisfying amount of difficulty. I played my first two campaigns on the normal difficulty because, you know, I figured out the game. But after the the second one, I thought I'd like a little more challenge. I feel like my, um, my party's just raffle stomping too much. So uh, I beat the third campaign, but only by the skin of my teeth and only because I resorted to tactics that some people might call nefarious. <laughs> Let's just say you maybe cheesed it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, hey, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I got, I, I won. I, yeah. I beat the campaign. <laughs> they don't ever tell how the battle was won, just that it was won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that I, I hear you on that. And, and yeah, this game um, definitely, you you won't be able to find or you'll be able to find a difficulty that's right for you even if you're a, a tactics expert so to speak at least in my opinion as not a tactic ex, tactics expert <laughs> <laughs> um but to that point maybe we should talk a, bit, a little bit about our like joint experience with this game yeah me and brian started up a new campaign last night all the bones of summer where you fight the swamp lizards yeah, it was really fun. We we both, uh, you know, we rolled a, a totally new party for ourselves, you know, so we got four characters, we split them up two and two. And I think that's an interesting way that they do this. They let you sort of like, you know, take control of a character or two. I'm sure if there were four of us, we could have each taken control of a character, which also mm-hmm. would have been really interesting. Um, and it, it works out really nicely. Like the, the multiplayer in this game works much more seamlessly than I would have expected. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, the tactical combat, like, you can take turns simultaneously, or at yeah. least plan out your turns simultaneously. I think the actions are discreet. Um, but then during the storyboards, too, like, people can read those cutscenes at their own speed. Uh, so yeah. you don't necessarily have to, like, coordinate everything over there. Just tiny little touches like that that made it a very smooth and enjoyable experience. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I thought like at first I was just reading along with you and then I was like, oh, we could just advance this simultaneously and it'll just tell us when the other person's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that worked out really well, um, uh, even though we both, you know, we read at a similar speed. But there's always sometimes when one of us will want to spend some time admiring the artwork or absorbing what a certain character says if they're, say, our characters in question. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy that. We had basically... Uh, uh, what we were Garglands Guardians, named after my big, <laughs> big himbo warrior that was our our mascot Gargling for lack of a better word. <laughs> Gargland Fern, yep. <laughs> um, but worth mentioning as well, this game has an excellent name generator um, in it. Uh, you can get all kinds of good stuff. Good name, good name generator, not only for characters but for weapons and armor and locations as well. You know, I think um, you mentioned this being kind of like a tabletop-like experience. I'll tell you, I didn't really get that in the single player, but I felt like the two of us playing together um, in the co-op campaign, that felt a lot closer to it. Like, we were deciding how we should take these story choices as they were being presented and, like, figuring out the story in our own head. Yeah, and, like, coordinating on, all right, you go attack that you know, a uh, long-ranged enemy over there while I hold off this um, melee character over here and we'll make sure that we protect that mage down there so that, 
you know, your mage down there so she can cast or, you know, infuse and cast a spell next turn or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it definitely like worked out really well. Like, um, again, if you haven't played this game, think about, you know, how you might play XCOM, um, cooperatively, except it works really well. <laughs> you know, it just, it, it, I, it's one of those things that I really didn't expect to work as well as it did. And it just worked really nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't hurt that this game, you know, is always not only easy to look at but easy to listen to. I'm just gonna put a quick um, touch on the fact that the music in this game by Candy Emberly is really nice. It's got some really nice sort of Lord of the Rings esque vibes. You know, it's always strings and um, music that you would expect to play as you walked through a forest. You know, lutes <laughs> and flutes and uh, some light horns and you know percussion words needed for battles it's just it it's really nice you know lutes and flutes would be a great name for a band lutes and flutes would be a great name for our next um group of adventurers in wilderness <laughs> All right, and with that, uh, why don't we take a minute to recount our epic uh, legacies in Wildermyth with a three-word review. My three-word review is Epic Myth Generator. Uh, One thing that struck me as I was playing Wildermyth was that every single farmer I picked out of a field or barhand that joined my crew would eventually go on to become a mythical hero of legend. Wildermyth lets you get invested in these characters you're forging and does an excellent job developing them, as you will almost always come away with an epic myth worthy of being included among the classics. Almost all of my favorite RPGs involve characters with heartfelt and affecting stories, see recent entries like Persona 5 or Fire Emblem Three Houses. But to see Wildermyth draw the same reaction from me with smartly designed procedural story generation feels a bit like magic. And that makes Wildermyth the perfect epic myth generator for me. All right. Uh, my three-word review, very similar and also very much a two-thumbs-up game for me. Uh, my three-word review is Rich Myth Smithing. Wildermyth is really three games in one. The first two are the most obvious, a turn-based party tactics game that's deeper than it first appears, and a light layer of hero management on the overworld worker placement map. The library of plays provides scenes and quest lines aplenty, which keeps the narrative flowing between combat and the main arc of each campaign. These plays, these, the events and the quests, they form the backbone of the Procogen narrative claim. Uh, they start to build up, and the third game emerges out of that. Through the legacy system, your heroes become myths, legends that reappear in times of need. This third level is a truly original game to me, and I enjoy the accumulation of memories and stories in this and previous lives that my heroes came to embody. Um, Maybe our joint three-word review is something like uh, Magical Memory Masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. Uh, And with that, we want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on gaming. Mm
so your favorite hero was your Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, Dr. Manhattan, the forest warrior. warrior. (laughs) He's a forest warrior. He was like, he was the best hero, man. He like had, uh, do you remember um, you got like a spear that was like the spirit of the the forest spear? It was an epic level three spear. I think it was in the Gorgon Quest or the one after. Yeah. Yeah. So he got that spear. He was a warrior. He got this spell touch thing and then became, you know, um, a ward of the forest, which basically made him effectively ageless. And he just kicked ass in every campaign that I had him in. He was also like a warrior that had all of the perks for like guardian. So he would like not just guardian, but if a guy came within range of him, he would just seek them out and destroy them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was some powerful stuff once you learned the warrior synergies. Yeah, I really enjoyed having Dr. Manhattan Forest Warrior. I need to look up his actual name and <laughs> and add it in here, because he, he was an MVP of multiple campaigns. I had some interesting people. Um, I had a spell-touched mage, or no, a spell-touched warrior, who also turned into my Pillar of Fire character. Ooh, nice. So the potency bonus was really put to good use with like a, it wasn't like a cone of flame, it was like a cone of flamethrower, you know? Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) I love the fire, I had a fire touch guy as well, and a lightning touch guy in one of my campaigns, and I always like, some of the, it feels like some of the transformations, like, oh, I'm not sure if I want my archer to lose an arm to crow, because then she can't use a bow, Mm -hmm. but then like, if a mage suddenly gets the opportunity to like get two hand hands of fire and they get a really powerful flamethrower move as a result, like that's always a good move. <laughs> always go flame. Yeah, and even like even for like I did have a hunter who was a fine like had some perks for like archery and stealth, but then I was like, all right, he's gotten like five opportunities to transform fire. I'm just going to go all in on fire. And he eventually became like a full human torch and his hunter legacy was completely lost. He was something else entirely by the end of that campaign. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a hunter. I'll put it that way, but he was the most effective member of my party regardless. <laughs> you know, we didn't really, we uh, talked about it a little bit, but the transforms uh, that your characters can get, there's tons of them out there and they really do make a difference both mechanically inside the tactics combat and kind of storytelling a little bit too like you mentioned that that changed personalities around um but yeah your your characters can become human torches they can become gigantic mountain people like just made of stone uh they can become crows bears wolves yeah yeah crows bears skeletons um you can get basically a different infusion for each of their transformation for each of the enemy factions too it seems um yeah there's there's all kinds of them i'm looking at the wiki right now um don't spoil yourself like i am right now unless you've played the game but it looks to me like there's at least a couple dozen of these different transformations oh very cool very cool and we didn't even touch on the pets um i know i've gotten a few pets i had a little fire chicken at some point that was fun um I think I only got a fire chicken. Uh, yeah, there's there's other critters. There's like a duck and uh, a one duck. that <laughs> one, one one that's just called a critter, and it looks like a little like miniature griffin without wings. It's very cute, and I think they actually sell plushes of it on the Wildermyth website if you're interested. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he makes an appearance on the game's box art, so that's not too big of a spoiler. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, this game is capable of producing like 
very good looking art and heroes, but also very cute critters. So um, kudos to the uh, lead artist on that one. Uh, Anne Austin, you know, one of the Austins of Austin who created this awesome game. <laughs>